Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, again, we welcome you. You have landed in the sort of beginning part of a new series that we're doing called 117, Learn to Do Justice. It takes it from the theme text of Isaiah 117, where the prophet Isaiah says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the uh, fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Well, Isaiah wasn't giving us some random verse in the Bible. That theme of justice runs throughout the Scripture from beginning to end, really. And it's part of what God commands of his people, that we live just lives. If we have been justified with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one really powerful result of that justification ought to be growth in our understanding of justice and growth in our pursuit of justice, even in this broken and unjust world. It's one of the ways that Christians are meant to be salt and light in the world. And several months ago, or a month or so ago, I asked you guys in the middle of a sermon how many of us had ever had any systematic instruction and discipleship in what the Bible teaches about justice, and in a room or a membership of about 130, 140 people, maybe five or six hands went up. I couldn't even raise my hand on that. This is an area of Christian discipleship that's largely just neglected. So what we want to do is give our attention to uh, this series on justice in doing two things. Number one, laying a kind of theological foundation, just putting down the floorboards of the building, just sort of theologically, how do we even approach this topic? Number two, we want to then sort of try and take that theology and apply it into sort of real-life justice circumstances, whether we're talking about things like gentrification or mass incarceration, whether we're talking about things that people debate like taxes and so on. We want to take the teaching of the Bible and try and work it out in Christian witness and Christian lifestyle. So if you're joining us this morning, we're in the third of our series and this morning, we want to ask and answer a question that's very basic. That You guys will know I've been kind of uh, punting on this question. I keep using the word justice, but I don't think I've really given you a definition of it. And this morning, that's what we want to do is sort of answer the question, how do we define justice? What is the meaning of this idea? And hopefully it helps us with our four goals of this series. Our goals in this series, number one, is to understand the biblical idea of justice. There's a lot of people talking about justice mean very different things. And if we're not careful to bring our Bibles with us into these conversations, we might wind up actually promoting some things that are unjust in the name of justice. Number two, we want to, as I just said, apply this idea to our Christian discipleship. We're meant to live out these things, not just know these things mentally. Number three, we want to then, in that sense, for at least ourselves as a church and as individual Christians, we want to reframe the conversation in biblical terms. And then finally, we want to unify around a set of biblical convictions. We, we mean for this to be a source of unity for us as a congregation and a source of unity for our witness. Well, how do we want to proceed this morning? I want to ask and answer three questions. First question, very simply, is this. Why won't secular definitions of justice work? Why won't secular definitions of justice work? Number two, how should the Christian then define justice? How should the Christian define justice? And then number three, how are all the biblical aspects of justice satisfied? How are all the biblical aspects of justice satisfied? 
So follow along as we think about these three questions. First question, why won't the world's definition of justice work? Well, to understand that, we got to go back to some of the philosophical approaches to justice, to justice that we talked about uh, in a couple of sermons ago. I, wanna, I think I mentioned these first three. I want to add a fourth this morning. Four broad sort of theoretical approaches to how we understand justice. One is what we call a, a utilitarian approach. Fancy word basically means that justice is whatever produces the most happiness and, 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 and prevents the most unhappiness or pain among the most people. So this is the don't worry, be happy <laughs> approach to justice. Whatever produces pleasure in the greatest amounts for the most people is what we would call justice according to this view. The second view is the libertarian view. We might call it the libertarian view, and there are many things that sort of branch out under the notion of libertarian. But at the heart, in this view, justice is whatever protects individual freedom. So the things that allow you and me as individuals to exercise the most freedom without those freedoms being taken away or contracted, well, that, in this view, is essential to justice. Protect the individual's ability to do whatever they wish to do as long as they're not harming the, the, the sort of rights of other individuals to do whatever they would wish to do. Okay? The third view, in sort of a, a, a secular perspective, what we might call a liberal view or a, a sort of virtue-based view. And this is the idea that, no, actually what justice should do is promote the good life, and it should promote virtue in its people. So the goal of government isn't just to protect freedom, and it isn't just to make people happy, it is to make people good, right? And so it should promote the virtue, the good, the right. Well, the fourth one is the one we want to add here. And that's a kind of egalitarian or equalitarian view. Fancy word that basically means that justice looks like distributing goods and outcomes equally or equitably. Right? So the just thing in a just society is where everybody more or less has the same kind of access to outcomes and resources in that way. So that's four broad views. I take these views from Michael Sandel's book um, titled Justice. And all of these truths, all of these views have some truth in them. Right? They're not completely wrong because they're secular. Christians should stop acting like that. They should stop acting like because something's not quote-unquote Christian, it's just wrong altogether. That's just not true. Because of God's common grace, there's a lot of truth in a lot of things that aren't quote-unquote Christian, right? So there's some truth in these things, but they all also have their weaknesses. Michael Sandel, who I just mentioned a moment ago, is a professor of philosophy at uh, Harvard, teaches what is one of the most popular classes at Harvard on this subject called justice. And in his book, Justice, he critiques these views uh, in this way. This is a quote from Sandel. A just society cannot be achieved simply by maximizing utility or happiness or simply by securing freedom of choice, right? So those things alone won't get us to justice. To achieve a just society, we have to reason together about the meaning of the good life and create a public culture hospitable to the disagreements that will inevitably arise. You see what he's saying here? Unless you answer the question of, about what makes the good life, then, then you, you're really going to be struggling. But, but to sort of answer that question about the good life, you got to have space where people can talk and even disagree 
arrive at some decision, and then sort of flesh out these principles. Sandals goes on to say this, justice is not only about the right way to distribute things, it is also about the right way to value things. And it's striking. I don't know that he's a Christian, but he just sounds more and more like one as he goes through the book. Right? Because when we come to this subject as, as Christians, we have to keep in mind what the good life is. Otherwise, we don't know what we're making progress toward. We, we don't know what our goals are. And this conversation about justice simply becomes a conversation about force. Who can get their way with the strongest argument or the most resources or some other use of leverage and force? That's, that's not how we're meant to think this through. So in addition to Sandal's comments, I would want to say three further points for us. Number one, no single philosophical approach will cover all the aspects of justice that the Bible talks about. We've got to keep that in mind. Number two, what Sandal calls the need to create a public culture hospitable to disagreements, well, that's true of local churches too. We need that same kind of culture animated by grace and the Spirit of God in our local churches. Most local churches handle this situation of justice, or if they don't use that term, maybe they use the term politics. They use it in one of two ways, either either by saying, we don't talk about politics, or by saying, you know, these are the politics you got to have in order to be a part of this church. So either by avoidance, or by forcing agreement, this is how many churches respond. Now, the interesting thing is, many of the churches who say they avoid politics, they end up backing into it in some other way, right? Because the Bible's inherently political. Truth is inherently political. You've got to draw some lines if you're going to be a faithful Christian, and in the world, that's going to feel like, in some way, being political. So most churches actually shut down the conversation rather than create space for the conversation. And this means in some ways what we're doing right now in this sermon series, what we're doing as a church community, we're out of the mainstream of most churches. We're actually trying to be the, con- the congregation that can have a conversation about things that are complex and about which we disagree. And to do that in a way that's loving and charitable and hopefully, hopefully is iron sharpening iron as we all get to be more faithful to the Bible. Now, if you shut down this conversation in the church, there are some consequences. Number one, we lose the ability to be faithful to the whole Bible. Bible talks over and over again about justice. If you're not going to talk about that, you're not going to be faithful to the Bible. If you don't have this conversation, here's the second consequence. We not only lose the ability to be faithful about about justice, we lose the ability to talk to each other and the world about justice. I I suspect that this is one of the reasons why Christians are are just seem so ineffective so often in public debate. We're not practiced at it. We just sort of come into the debate and want to say, hey, okay, here are my two verses from the Bible. And the man you're talking to is like, I don't care about your Bible. You know what I mean? And you just keep saying, but no, these are my two verses. And he says something else. You go, no, these are my two verses. Well, that's entirely ineffective in a world that's already not listening to God, already not listening to the Scripture. And if we don't have the, the ability to talk, to listen, to engage, to argue, to persuade, well, we're just not going to be salt and light in the world. 
And we're not going to be as deeply unified as we could be in the church. And so this, this need for a public culture that's hospitable to disagreement and where iron sharpens iron, that's as vital for the church as it is the broader society. And here's a third thing, a third point that I would add to Sandel's critique. To reason about what it means, what the good life means, must come from God's perspective. Amen. It's God who defines the good life. Right? And so our unique contribution to these discussions begins with our knowing God personally, knowing his word, and articulating a vision of the good life that actually pleases God and leads to human flourishing. Without that, we can't do this work. And that's why I wanted us to sort of think about Matthew 23, 23. You see there, you've heard me refer to this verse many times already in this series. It's become one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites of his day. And one of the things he says in Matthew 23 as he pronounces this judgment is essentially that they are not just people. And here's what he says, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, or in Luke's version, love. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, the reason I'm taking us to this text this morning is not to do a full exposition of this text, but to actually sort of ask the question, how does Jesus read the Bible? Because we want to read our Bibles the way Jesus read the Bible. And notice what Jesus does as he comes to the Bible talking to these Pharisees. There are three ways at least that he reads his Bible, which ought to inform how we read our Bibles. Number one, Jesus believed in the Bible. He quotes it here without qualm, without hesitation, without justification, without equivocation. He just goes right to the Bible and refers to the law here. But number two, Jesus not only believed the Bible, he believed the most important aspects of the Bible's message concerned justice and mercy and love. He said these are the weightier matters. These are the more important issues that the Bible is talking about. Not your little tithing. Not whether you give, you know, according to your mint. You should do that. But the deep things of God in terms of what the law and the Bible require of us, well, that's about justice. That's about mercy. That's about love and faithfulness. And it's the third thing we learn about how Jesus believed or read the Bible. Jesus believed the best way then to understand justice is by letting the Bible define it for us. His entire engagement with the Pharisees here, in this one little verse, he's not sort of saying, you know, hey, look, you know, Aristotle said, or Socrates said, or the guy down at the university said. No, he says the weightier matters of the law is how we arrive at our understanding and our pursuit of justice. Now, just as Christians for a moment, we have to recognize then that if these religious hypocrites in Jesus' day missed the main point of the Bible, and therefore missed the importance of justice, it's no surprise to us if secular hypocrites miss the main point of justice and don't even come to the Bible. 
And, and that really it ought to be an indication to us that we're not taking our cues from the world in this conversation. Even though in common grace there's truth and good to be learned, it cannot be at the foundation of how we understand justice and how we pursue this. It must be the Bible that's at the foundation of how we understand this and how we pursue this. So that brings us to our question, our second question. How should the Christian then define justice? Well, let me give you a cumbersome definition. Justice is doing the right thing. So now we're looking at the sort of outcomes of justice. To the right extent, to the right people, in the right way, at the right time, according to an interpretation, a right interpretation of God's word. So there are a lot of things to get right if we're going to be just according to the Bible. We've got to get the outcomes right. We've got to get the proportion right to the right extent. We've got to get the subjects right to the right people. We've got to get the process right. We've got to get the timing right. If it's late, it's injustice. <laughs> if it's early, it's injustice. And it's got to be according to a right understanding of God's word. Now, I want to suggest to you in this definition are implicit at least four things, four sort of aspects of justice that you'll see in the literature and see in various ways. Um, that is, that justice, like, according to this definition, includes four things. Retribution, right? So that's punishment or reward. Restoration, that's making the victim whole. Distribution. That's giving, according to the Bible, to those who, uh, according to their need, and procedure. That's a process that itself is just, that leads to those just outcomes. And what I want to show you is that these concepts, again, are not rooted fundamentally in the academy. They're rooted fundamentally in the Bible. So with each of these sort of categories, I want to give you, as Jesus would understand it, where it's rooted in the law, and then I want to give you illustrations of it. Y'all with me? Okay, so the right thing, these three outcomes here, retribution, restoration, and distribution. Now, you will, you will know these kind of in the common language in which we talk about this. So retributive justice, you, you've heard the phrase eye for an eye, two for a two, or you've used the phrase payback. You're talking about retributive justice when you think in those terms or you use that kind of language. The basic idea is someone harmed someone else, and as a result of that harm, they should be harmed in return. They should be punished in return. Or, to put it in the positive, someone has done good, and for the doing of good, they should be rewarded. That's the idea there. A biblical basis, um, one place we'll see this, Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 to 25. There the Bible says, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, obviously, if we take this to its logical conclusion, all of us are blind and crippled, <laughs> right, right? All of us are blind and crippled, and so if we're only about punishment, we, we won't be about full flourishment of life, even though punishment is necessary for wrongdoing. And this idea of punishing the wrongdoer and rewarding the righteous 
Well, that's a fundamental part of human government as God designs it. So the key question that we ought to be asking here is, does what I'm calling justice punish or reward the right people? Because injustice here is to fail to punish and reward or to punish and reward the wrong people. Either of those are a perversion of this form of justice. And God has given us government, human government, to get this right. This idea of punishing the wrong and rewarding the good. And when, just, when governments fail at this, they themselves become unjust or act unjust. Now let me root that for you in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Peter writes there, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see, the, you see the purpose there that God has in government? It says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. Now think about how hard that is in Peter's day. Because the emperor in ancient Rome is all about emperor worship. It's all about idolatry. It's not himself righteous. And yet when we think about the institution and what God requires of us in the institution, we're meant to honor the king. We're meant to submit to government. But we're also meant to ensure that government does its job properly. Romans chapter 13, 1 to 5, see very similar things there. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And then Paul gives this reason. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now these texts are thinking about government when government is functioning properly, when they actually get this exercise of the sword right, when it punishes the right fully wrongdoer, and rewards the good. That should be a common grace expectation of government. Christians should expect that. And when that fails, Christians, above all people, should be pointing out the injustice then that's been perpetrated. For that institution then lies about the God who founded it. It misrepresents the God who established it. So I do not understand these texts to mean that no matter what government does, Christians should submit to it. That's not true. That's not been true since the midwives in the Exodus who refused Pharaoh's command to kill all the babies. That's not been true since Daniel in the lion's den and in the fiery furnace. When Daniel and the Hebrews boy, you know, said, you know what, you're the king, but we ain't going to worship you. You just go right through the Bible and you see case after case of civil disobedience when the government gets it wrong. But when the government gets it right, we should honor the government. And one of the ways we honor the government is insisting that it get it right. 
right? So this is a part of how retributive justice is meant to be carried out and meant to be established. You guys with me? So let's move to that second category, restorative justice. So retributive justice punishes. It's payback. But then you have to ask yourself the question, what about the person who was wronged? What about the victim? What does justice look like for that person? Because simply punishing the wrongdoer doesn't do anything really to restore the wronged. Doesn't do anything to restore the victim. The person who was victimized, if we're going to have a more complete justice system, the person who is victimized has to be made whole again, has to be restored. That's what restorative justice is about. So the key question here that we want to add to our first one is, does what I am seeking and calling justice restore the people who are wronged? Restore the people who are wronged. Well, what's the basis for that in the Bible? Turn with me to Exodus 21, beginning in verse 33. It's a long section down to verse, chapter 22, verse 15, which gives all these sort of cases and illustrations in God's law where God's people are to be concerned, not just with punishment, but also restoring. So we see there in Exodus 21, 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit, notice, shall make restitution or restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Another example. When one man's ox butts another so that the other ox dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. You see what's happening there. There's been an injustice committed and there's to be this sharing that leads to restoration. One man has lost an ox and so that person needs to share in that loss. And the one who still has an ox needs to now share in that, in that ox and giving that ox and splitting the proceeds. This is restitution. Chapter 22, verse 1, talks about whether or not a man steals an ox. You see there at the end of uh, of that, if he steals an ox and is caught, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And on down through the end of this section, verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, the thief shall pay double. What happens if the thief isn't found? Verse 9, For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or a donkey or a sheep, for a cloak or any kind of lost thing, or which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. You see this idea just running through the Bible. that if we have wronged people and they have suffered loss or suffered, we not only must apologize, we must actually also restore. We must make restitution for the wrong that's been done. Now, there's some beautiful examples of this in the Bible. Let me give you a New Testament example. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. That's the only song I learned from children's church. I didn't go enough to learn the ones that George learned, man. I never heard the ones. George. That explains a lot about George, you know, those, those songs. His fascination with space. He talked to him about quarks and quasars and stuff. It's like, okay, that went back to Sunday school. All right, up in space, outer space, there's a heaven. 
But Zacchaeus, this wee little man, Luke 19, you remember he comes down out of the sycamore tree, goes to Jesus, goes to his house, throws a party for Jesus. And, and you remember what Zacchaeus says in the middle of that party? He says, listen, if I have taken from anyone anything, I restore to him four times what I had taken. And Jesus says, okay, now I know you're repentant. Because you have turned now to do what's required in the law. To do justice to the people that you have wronged. And Jesus pronounces on that day that Zacchaeus is his. It's a powerful illustration of, of, of restorative justice. But let me give you another one. I ask you to turn with me this time. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. Many of you will know this passage of the Bible as well. And I want us to look at it because it includes both punitive justice and restorative justice. And it really illustrates the point that actually if we're going to be really just people, we've got to get more and more of these categories into our definition of justice and what we're seeking in the world. 2 Samuel chapter 12, you guys will know this scene. Um, Nathan the prophet comes to David the king. David's done some dirt. He took another man's wife and then he sent that man Uriah out to war. And he basically told the, the captains of the army to step back and leave Uriah out on the front lines to be sure that Uriah would get killed and cover up the fact that David had committed this adultery with his wife and she was now pregnant. So David is, I mean, he's living dirty right there. And so 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends the prophet of Israel to David and, and he addresses the king. Wait a minute now, hold on. I got the wrong text. I'll just tell you the story. Oh, that's 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel. <laughs> Helps if I get to the right book. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he, bought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children, he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. What kind of justice is that? That's retributive. That's punishment, right? Deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. What kind of justice is that? It's restorative. Because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. When the prophet comes to you, be careful how you answer Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered out of your hand, you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. This is the Lord who does retributive justice better than any man. 
A sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your, your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You bet you have. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. It's a powerful scene of confrontation and accountability and of justice. Both the repayment for the wrong is done and the call to restitution in that story that, that uh, Nathan tells. And so to be just, we want both those things in view. This is why anytime you see someone who sort of overly leans on punishment, you know they don't quite have the whole counsel of God in mind. They think all of the problems of the world are answered by punishment. They're thinking incompletely about justice. You've got to add to the appropriate punishment also the appropriate restitution, the making of people whole. Which brings us to a third aspect, distributive justice. Again, a common way of talking about this is fair share. People have their fair share. And it's not entirely a matter of equality or, or of simply fitting the thing to be distributed to the best persons to, to have it. Distributive justice is not sort of a matter of everyone keeping what they've earned or what they've come into sort of possession of. Let me give you an example. Wakanda has vibranium. Wakanda forever. Wakanda has vibranium, not because they made it up and discovered it, or of any ingenuity in them, but because a meteor from outer space happened to hit the continent. Right? It's completely a matter of providence. It's completely a matter of fortune. This is why the whole debate around Wakanda and whether or not they should share with the rest of the world has such power to us. Because they have riches and resources, but it's not attributable to them, to their work, or their genius, or anything of that sort. It's attributable to providence. And so the question around should they share, should they not, gets this sort of justice force because there's a question about appropriate distribution of the resource. Let me give you a real-life example. I, and I know it's a surprise to you that Wakanda is not real, but let me give you a, a real-life <laughs> real example. Some of us wish it were. <laughs> we try to go home. <laughs> let me give you a real-life example privilege, male privilege, white privilege. It's the same sort of thing as vibranium in Wakanda. The fact that I was born male has nothing to do with me, has everything to do with providence, has everything with God determining that I should be a man. And the fact that I accrue certain benefits in society because I'm a man has nothing to do with my talent and my ability. Even if I think I worked hard and did various things, the obvious fact of the matter is, as a man, relative to women, I have certain advantages. Simple ones. 
for example, I can walk down the street, any street, without worrying about somebody catcalling or somebody doing something inappropriate to me sexually. But as I understand it from women, that's something they think about quite often. Have to think about. It's a great privilege to me that I don't. That's an advantage. Let me give you another one. If I show up and apply for a job and um, our sister Takor shows up with the same qualifications, apply for a job, statistically, I'm probably going to get the job and probably going to make more than she would have made if she'd gotten the same job, did the same work. That ain't right. It's, it's a distribution that's unfair along the lines of gender that are not a measure of my success and my skill or anything that I've done. White privilege. Same thing. White brothers and sisters in this country, I think it's just a fact that you have certain advantages that other ethnic groups don't have by virtue of the history of this country, sometimes intentional unjust policies in this country, and the kind of advantages that were, were sort of doled out in this country. I just take a simple example. Take home ownership. Home ownership among African Americans hasn't been climbing in recent years. It's troubling. Home ownership is the path to wealth and assets for most people in this country. The relative difference in home ownership rates has a lot to do with policies in this country that either penalize African Americans or privilege white Americans. So when this country decided with its GI Bill and its home loan programs that only whites would be um, sort of eligible for those programs, and that fueled the middle class buying of homes and the growth of wealth, and African Americans were excluded, well, that's privilege. And it's not right. It ruins the distribution of what's fair, right? Or, or, or redlining. And any number of other kinds of housing policies, for example. And, and we can could, we could sort of multiply this, right? That kind of privilege is actually an injustice. Not because you necessarily did it. Not any more than I necessarily did it being born male. But it is what it is. And if we're going to be about justice, we got to think about what it is and think about how to use it in favor of justice. So, for example, the answer to male privilege may not necessarily be to be to give up your privilege in, in times and places. That, that may actually be what I need to do. But in many more other times and places, I need to use the advantages I have on behalf of my sisters to sort of create equality, to create justice. Uh, I need to use that to open doors and, and, and bring to the table persons who've been excluded systematically because of this privilege. If you have some advantages and blessings uh, by God's providence because you're white, there's no mistake that you're white. There's no shame that you're white. Don't, don't, don't go away thinking that. That's not what I'm saying. But if you recognize that you've had some privileges or some blessings, some advantages that come to you by providence that have added to your, your work and your effort, that have created space for you, steward it. Use it for the glory of God. Don't use it for your own selfish gain. Use it for the blessing of others. That's what's sort of beneath, in part, this idea of distributive justice. Where well, we see this in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, for example. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You see how God doesn't leave his people 
to simply selfishly enjoy their advantage, but actually commands that we be generous to those who do not have. He's commanding here redistribution. And if God commands redistribution on some level, it cannot be an injustice. It must be right. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, or excuse me, 9 and 10. You guys will see this passage all throughout the law of the Old Testament. Uh, You see it stated in many places. There the writer says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fill up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So he's saying it's an agricultural society. You you go out, you've planted the crops, they've grown, it's time to reap them. Don't take everything off the tree and out the field. Why? Verse 10. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them there for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Here, God is making provision for those who are in need through the work and the labor of those who have. And he's doing that provision in a way that still also preserves the dignity of those who are in need because they got to go in the field and work and get the gleanings. Where do we see this in the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28. This is what we see written to the New Testament church. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, in, in, in our world, we imagine a period right there. He, he works, he, he eats, he earns for himself. That's his only responsibility. That's not true according to the Bible. The sentence continues to go. It says there, doing work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's distributive justice. We work, did you know this? Not just for ourselves, but we work and God calls us to work in part for the needs of others. Now, there's a great deal of individual decision and discernment and freedom that's in this. So we don't read in the Bible a, a particular tax policy or thing of that sort. But there's no doubt that God means for his people to be agents of distributive justice, to meet the needs of those who are without. Which brings us to our final element, procedural justice. All of this, whether punishment or distribution or restoration, has to happen in a fair way. So, so this procedural justice is about fair play here. We know something's not quite fair, even if we have a good outcome, if we recognize that the process is shady, right? So imagine you got two people disputing about an inheritance from their parents, for example, and uh, their brothers, parents have died, left the estate, maybe didn't leave a will. They're arguing about who gets what. Y'all know how that happens, right? They go to the courts, and the courts make a decision. And from the outside, the decision looks pretty good. It looks like a good sort of splitting of the baby. He got half, he got half, and the judge seemed to have some wisdom. And, and you might be cool if that's all you knew, but what if you learned that one of the brothers had gone and bribed the judge? Well, then all of a sudden, what looked like a good outcome is suspicious, isn't it? It looks unfair, or at least it could be. And now all of a sudden, our support for that decision is weakened because our perception of the process is that it was unfair. 
So how we get to justice is as important as the justice we get to. That the procedure be right and fair is as important as the outcome because the procedure will undermine how people feel about the outcome. Let me give you a real-life example. My, um, one of my graduate advisors is a man named Rupert Barnes-Nacost. He was a scholar in um, the field of procedural justice. He applied procedural justice to the issue of affirmative action. That was the whole body of his expertise and research, and I had the privilege of working with him on that for a number of years. Basically, the, the research came down to this, that perceptions of the fairness of affirmative action went up to the extent that people perceive the procedure to be fair. So if people thought the only thing that was included in the affirmative action decision was a person's race, guess what? They thought that was unfair and support for it went down. But if race or ethnicity or gender were one of a number of things that were considered in the procedure, then most people's ratings of affirmative action actually went through the roof as fair and right and corrective of an injustice. See, there the procedure told you a lot about whether or not people consider the outcome just. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about here procedural justice. Here's the key question. Has what I have been seeking and calling justice been reached in a righteous way? Been reached in a righteous way. We can want the right outcome and be married to the wrong method. That's the difference between Nakia and Killmonger. We're back. I'm still in Wakanda, y'all. Y'all left? Where'd y'all go? <laughs> That's the difference between a man who's talking with kind of blind rage and unfocused anger and about just taking life in the name of justice and a woman who is risking her life in righteous ways and calling her government in righteous ways to pursue a similar outcome in terms of justice. The process matters for what we determine to be just. Let me get this rooted in the Word of God for us. Um, Exodus 23, 1 to 3 and 6 to 8. This matters when it comes to giving testimony about um, legal proceedings or in legal proceedings. Uh, Exodus 23, 1 to 3, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So when we give testimony to what's just and what's right, we got to check ourselves for partiality. Down to verse 6. You shall not perverse the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So you see in verse 3, you don't sort of play favors with the poor. But in verse 6, you don't pervert the justice due to the poor. You're meant to be, according to the Bible, objective in your statement about what's right. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So when it comes to testimony and our procedures, we want fair and right procedures. Proverbs 18, 17 says this, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So we don't want to be hasty in drawing our judgments when we only have one side of the story. 
You know, there's another side of the story. And justice and what's right is sometimes found between them or, or actually tailored more specifically as you add the data together. One thing seems right until it's answered. Well, this matters in terms of the appointment of judges. Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That applied not only to the justices, the judges of ancient Israel, it applies to us as Christians. Don't you know we'll judge angels with Christ? And it ought to be what we want in our elected and appointed judges and magistrates from the local to the federal level. And it applies not just to the legal sort of area, the courtroom. Procedural justice is important for the business world as well. So Deuteronomy 25, 15 to 16 says there, a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. When the Bible uses this language of, of weights and measures, imagine a scale. Maybe you are sort of valuing something based upon what it weighs on the scale. So you put the object over here, um, and, and then you start to put over here sort of weights, and those weights tell you how much this is supposed to be worth. Well, to use some, 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 some funky weights, right, to use some unjust weights, that's cheating in the business world. That's what it's talking about here. You know, so to exploit someone contractually, well, that's an injustice. Not every contract is moral. Just because two people agreed to it doesn't make it right. You know, because someone went to a payday lending establishment to cash their check, and agreed to pay 20% of their check to get their check cash, that doesn't mean that establishment is right. That's extortion. That's robbery. Amen. Right? We, we want to see fairness in process and outcome in every area of life. Business, legal, so on. Here's what Proverbs 16 11 says. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. God asked in Micah 6, 11, this rhetorical question, shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Surely he will not. Even in Jesus' life, we see an illustration of this. John chapter 5, there's an argument that breaks out among the Pharisees, and some want to condemn him. And John chapter, excuse me, John chapter 7, verse 51, I think it's Nicodemus who asked the question, does our law condemn a man before it hears him? He's talking about procedural justice there. The rightness of hearing both sides and rendering a just verdict. Well, that's what we're called to pursue. That's how I think the Bible defines justice in broad terms. Let's conclude briefly with our third question. How are all aspects of biblical justice to be satisfied? How do we do the right thing to the right extent for the right people in the right way at the right time according to a right interpretation of God's Word? 
This is hard work. This is not the stuff you accomplish with the speed of a tweet. This is the stuff that requires thought and prayer, investigation, and pressing. And ultimately, this gets perfectly right only in two ways. Only in the gospel itself. In this life, we begin to experience and to live out perfect justice when we come to Jesus. Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus has done for us. When it comes to retributive justice, God has paid back our sins by punishing his son. That's what's happening on the cross. Or, or, or think about restorative justice. In his death and his resurrection, Jesus takes us and makes us whole again. Brings us forgiveness and righteousness and reconciles us to the Father. The thing that had been broken, that we broke between us and God, Jesus repairs and makes right again in his death, burial, and resurrection. Or distributive justice. Have we not become inheritors to a kingdom that we cannot build? All that is God's, that is in Christ, is now ours through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not withheld any good thing from us. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ, and it ain't got nothing to do with your status in life. It ain't got nothing to do with you being male or female, black, white, brown, yellow. It ain't got nothing to do with your age or your wealth or your education. Doesn't matter whether you came in the first hour of the workday or the last hour of the workday. God will give to all those who trust in Christ his whole kingdom. It's distributive justice. And the procedure, praise be to God, the cross is perfectly designed to accomplish all of God's justice in a perfect way. Because there on the cross, the, the sins of men are punished, and there on the cross, the mercy of God is displayed to sinful men. Christ has become for us everything we need before God. He's become our righteousness, and he's become our sin bearer. So everything that God wants to hold together, he holds together in Jesus' son on the cross. And the process is clean. You ain't got to obey no laws. You ain't got to do a lot of work. You ain't got to earn a lot of money money, all you got to do is say, I am a sinner and I believe Jesus saved me. Repentance and faith, the simplest process to justice ever made. And guess what God pronounces about it all? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, God says there, I am just and the justifier of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, his ways are right. His outcomes are right. His work in the world is all righteousness. And our experience of justice begins with us coming to Jesus. And beloved, if retributive justice is rewarding folks and punishing folks, you need to understand something about this gospel. You can't treat it like any old light thing. You can't set the gospel aside and hope to escape punishment. In fact, if you put Jesus aside, well, that's the injustice that God will punish for all of eternity. But if you trust in Jesus, well, that's the, that's the grace that God is giving you that he will reward forever. So if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. Justice begins with you. 
by escaping God's punishment and receiving a reward through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would like nothing more than to help you do that and to understand that. Well, that's the first way that justice begins in this world. Well, how does it all get wrapped up? Well, it gets wrapped up not in this life. We will always be working for justice in this life. It gets wrapped up in that life to come. For when Christ comes back and brings his kingdom, everything that's crooked will be made straight. Everything that's sad will be made happy. Everything that's wrong will be made right. Everything that's bad will be made good. Because in that kingdom is no sin and are no sinners. Only righteousness shining like the noonday sun. And so we don't have to get discouraged in our press for justice. There's a lot that will remain unfixed in this world. But in the world to come, which is the world we're living for, we'll get what we long for. Perfect righteousness, complete satisfaction, everlasting justice from the one God who knows how to do it all perfectly. This is our hope, beloved. This is what we're working for and looking for and longing for. And this is why the church always says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.